Welcome to Life on Earth, the podcast. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Adam uh, Mushmouth Bailey, today. Um, he, sorry, that just for a little behind the screen, he was having a little trouble with the discussion this morning. So uh, we're joined today with, by a woman named Heather, and Heather was gracious enough to agree to come on the air with us and talk about addiction and recovery from a point of view other than minor atoms. Um, we've had some People come on and discuss, you know, the therapeutic side of helping people through addiction recovery, but we haven't really had somebody to come on and tell their story of what it feels like firsthand to be the person uh, facing the climb of, of going through recovery. And this is something that I know so many people face. Um, and we, as we're getting help, we have the benefit of being able to talk to counselors and uh, medical professionals, but. I find that the most healing comes from talking to somebody who's gone through something similar to what we're going through and to hear a success story of somebody who's come out on the other side from, from the journey. So with that, good morning, Heather, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Good morning to you as well. How are you guys doing? We are well. Um, so, you know, right off the bat, let, let's just start from the very beginning. Tell yeah. me a little bit about your addiction and what you were facing. So... I have several addictions, just like many addicts, but I would say my main addiction where I, things, where I really started to notice that I had an addiction and where things really went south was um, an opiate addiction. Um, I, was, uh, I was giving birth to my son and things went wrong. Long story short, I had to have corrective surgeries done and obviously sent home with major pain pills for months and months and months. Fast forward a couple months into it, and I was branded, um, and so injuries kind of got reopened, yada yada yada. And before you know it, I'm on a pain contract. Um, I didn't even know I was addicted for a long time, to be honest, because I had just a plethora of pain pills coming in. But the thing with pain pills is, once you have been on them, I I would say honestly longer than three months is you're constantly going into your doctor and running out early or trying to get bumped up into how the quantity or even the dosage amount because you're never ever fully satisfied because your pain starts to actually go away but I feel like your brain is kind of telling you that it's still there because you like I mean most people generally like the way they feel with pain medicine you know I, at least from my point, I know there are several people that don't like it at all, but <laughs> it's a, one of those feel good kind of things. And that's what it did with me. It one took me out of pain. So I was able to move around and do the things I need to do. And two, my receptors and everything, like everything, I was just, my serotonin levels were through the roof. I was so happy. I thought everything was great. Then you run out and your appointment isn't for two weeks and you're sick, you're not feeling good. And that's when the true part of addiction really hits in. And it took me eight years to get out of that vicious cycle. So it's, it's in, you know, I try to go and speak to like different doctors and different panels and all that, just because I know ways that I manipulated my doctors and I don't put them to blame at all. But I think there's a huge education that needs to be done starting with the medical staff as far as pain, pill addiction, opiate addiction goes, because it does lead to very dark places. 
Well, about what year did you notice? Well, what year were you put on them, just for kind of context? In... 2012. Okay. Well, well, no, actually 2010. I, I apologize, 2010. <laughs> I don't no, my other. That makes sense, just because, you know, for my own context, I <clears throat> graduated my training in 2008, and they were pushing opiates as, you know, pain was the sixth vital sign, and um, there's obviously been a, a huge pendulum swing, but that, that, that was when I was thrust into yeah. practice and you used the word pain contract, which was interesting because that's exact, you know, as long, there was the feeling that as long as people were on pain contracts, we could kind of quote unquote manage mm -hmm. this, we being the medical professionals, but we quickly learned that that wasn't the case and, and there was a, a huge, uh, I hate to use the word pandemic, but <laughs> epidemic of, uh, of, of opioid misuse prescription and, and we're still seeing the fallout from that, so. Well, and there is no other word oh, you can use. Absolutely. I mean, it's an epidemic. Yeah, it's it's serious. It's it's huge right now, and it's affecting everybody. I mean, it's <laughs> from lawyers, doctors to students. I mean, when I went through treatment, there was kids in there that were teenagers. I mean, it's affecting so many people, and it's really sad when you see a young person in there whose life is already starting off that way. It's just, it's, yeah, it's really sad. So I'm glad that things are turning around. I do know that it is harder for people to go in and just get pain pills prescribed. However, it is still happening, you know? And I do know that some people actually do need pain pills. And so it's, it, it's hard, it really is, but yeah. Well, um, to hear you describe it, there's an interesting point that I don't want to get too far from because I think it gets lost a lot with substance addictions is, you know, they're prescribing you medicine for the pain. You have an injury, you have an acute pain, you need that pain to go away just to function your day-to-day -day life. But medicine isn't like a heat sinking missile that goes directly to that one thing and only addresses that issue and everything else is left completely alone. So what I like the way you described it of all, you know, while it was getting rid of the pain, it was handling a lot of other issues too, such as you know stress levels, your serotonin levels. So even if the pain was gone, those other things aren't gone. And you know whether you're consciously thinking about this or not, but if taking the pill equals I feel better in several ways, without taking the pill, I feel worse in several ways. Do you feel like all of those other issues were also being lumped in in your brain with the pain relationship to the medicine as well? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There is some powerful things that go on when you're uh, an opiate addict, especially with pain pills. Um, and I say pain pills versus heroin per se, because I'm, I'm not an expert as far as the heroin side of it, but I do know with the pain pill side, it, it's, there's a lot of mind um, over matter that does go into the addiction. Um, in fact, Prior to all of this, I'd say 10 years prior, I used to be prescribed um, Vicodin. And I was prescribed Vicodin for four years for endometriosis. I never knew that you could become addicted and be sick after not having it. And guess what? When my time was, you know, when I quit getting my prescriptions for Vicodin, I, was, I wasn't sick. But fast forward, you know, to all of this and I'm prescribed Oxy. Granted, it was, you know, a higher, you know, milligram, but 
I knew about, you know, that I would be sick without it. And so I think there, I, I hope I'm answering your question properly. You are. This but, is perfect because yeah, you know, I, medication is given to you by a doctor. They're healing you. This is part of a healthy process. And while we know in the back yeah. of our heads that there is a, a situation we vilify addicts so much in society, nobody thinks of themselves in that line. So you're not the one who's going to get addicted. And I've been given pain medication as well, right. but I had the luxury of seeing other addicts, you know, their pain was kind of my reward of, I was very cognizant of it, but this is a healer. This person's job is to make you better. They've given you something to get rid of the pain. All of this adds up to positive, positive, positive. You're given these pills. Mm -hmm. There's that little disconnect of, I'm not an addict. I'm not the person who's going to end up addicted to this, you know, because we vilify them. It's bad people are addicts. Good people can handle their medicines. When reality is, lucky people don't get addicted. Unlucky people do. I mean, it really seems to boil down to that. Yeah, you hit it on the nail. Yeah, exactly. Did you have that disconnect? Sorry, you had that disconnect then? You had that disconnect of? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I did. And then once I realized I was addicted, (laughs) I almost had, you know, the whole denial process that you do in your head, you know, of like, oh, I'm not that bad. You know, my doctor prescribes it to me. It's legal. What I'm doing isn't bad. But I'll tell you, you know, after several years, it does lead to um, areas that are scary and are illegal. And, you know, um, it, it, it made me a person that I just never, ever wanted to be. And towards the end of my addiction, I remember seeing moms driving by and, you know, their soccer mom cars and just wishing I was them because I looked and like, you know, they looked like they were happy and they didn't have this addiction, you know, over them. And, you know, they woke up in the morning, not needing to have a pain pill to function for the day. They could get up in the morning, get their kids ready for school and not have to worry about, oh, do I have a pain pill so that I can, you know, function and get my, you know, children up and ready for school. It, it, it was a huge, uh, it's very stressful being an opiate addict. You're constantly in fear, constantly worrying about if you have enough medicine to get you through the day or through, you know, the morning, the morning is always a worry because, when you're an opiate addict, you kind of want to do all your, your payments and that you have in front of you. And then you try not, you know, you, while you're worried about the morning, you just think that miraculously this fairy's going to come along and <laughs> save the day. And, <laughs> you well, know, and then it, morning hits and yeah. It's interesting the way you say this, you're a great quantifier of a feeling because I can almost feel you in that place of like, it's this omnipresent cloud. It's no matter what you're doing throughout the day, the next thing can't be accomplished without addressing this first. And it's a part of everything you say. So oftentimes when we think about recovery from addiction, we're thinking about getting the physical, you know, connection to the medication, the withdrawals and that, but the mental part of, do you think it becomes part of your identity? Almost part of who you are? Oh, wow. Yeah, it absolutely does. Like, and you don't really know anything aside from that you know, and you got to imagine like your whole 90% of your day is filled with either doing the medication or trying to locate the medication because it's not like, 
it's not like weed or anything like that where you know there's 10,000 weed dealers that roam the city right it's different you have to you know meet people that you know can actually get a hold of these pain pills it's very expensive (laughs) it's a Mm -hmm. very expensive habit I mean I was spending $500 a day on my habit it's yeah yeah let's kind of maybe march through that so early 2010s you know you get prescribed for some medical things you take it as you Mm -hmm. your pain starts to feel better this is good you have maybe some other euphoric uh side effects and then probably i I don't want to put words in your mouth but for many years that as i kind of alluded to that was the that was actually the norm that uh that was the the thinking at the time that people have pain treat them with pain pills so what period end of story but um obviously it, it sounds like at some point you stopped with or you were not only getting it as a prescription from your doctor and it and it switched over to the streets um how long did it take until that happened two years for me um because i so i started off getting oxycodone five milligrams and then within two weeks they bumped me up to 10 milligrams um and so I mean, you guys are probably familiar, but for anyone that's not familiar, it starts out at five milligrams, 10 milligrams, 15 milligrams. There are 20 milligrams they are very rare. And then 30 milligrams for oxycodone and 30 is like the, you know, the height, like the, the best that you could get, I guess, um, mm-hmm. or the highest milligram that you could get that I was ever aware of. Um, and so as an addict, you're constantly trying to manipulate your doctor into bumping up your milligram and also your quantity. And I capped out with 90 15s a day. That's the highest that my doctor would take me to. And I think that was at that time, probably what the state was actually recommending at that time, because it was kind, it was started in 2012, it was starting to kind of branch out to where, hey, we're starting to see problems with these pain pills. It wasn't a huge uh, I guess epidemic at that time, but there were some um, guidelines I think that were it being was put monitoring. in place. Yes. Now exactly. you said a day. Are you sure you meant a day, or did you mean a month? Ninety a month. Oh, a month. I'm sorry. Okay, I just wanted to make <laughs> no, sure. I was. I, mean, it's, I was it's, like, no. It's possible, <laughs> but I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. No. Yeah, and that, so, that's that's it. That's a okay. So we're at we're at about ninety a month of fifteen milligrams. I totally follow. Uh huh. Yes, so that, and that's so exactly that sounds right. I would do those anywhere between a week and a half and two weeks. And so then I had the remainder of the months where I didn't have any of my pain pills because just to make myself feel better, I had to do, so with 90, 90 a month, that's three a day. I want to say I was prescribed. Yes. Three a day. Um, I was doing 10 a day. And so, you know, and that was just to feel good and have that little boom up of you know the probably the serotonin level so that I was you know I'll tell you what my house was always immaculately clean and everything and everything was always done because I felt good but I always had to like do another one to get that extra boom of energy you know burst so that I could finish dinner and clean the house get the kids ready for bed and da 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 you know it's all the stuff that comes along with having three children and two of my children were very very young at the time and my oldest was a teenager, so I was busy. And so um, aside from all that, yeah, it was like, you're constantly, you know, having to, in order to feel better, you're having to take more and more and more and more. Your tolerance is 
insane by the time you're yeah and my tolerance was up to I want to say about fifth by the end of my addiction about 15 30 milligrams um a day which is I mean you guys I mean you know you're a medical professional that's an insane amount for someone to be taking um I'm very lucky that I you know nothing happened to me during that time because that that's a lot um which is it goes to show that our bodies are are um really amazing and I mean there's a saying that a kind of a funny saying but how, how do you how do you eat a Buick and it's it's one bite at a time right you know so I mean we can we can accomplish <laughs> I don't know if that even fits but we can accomplish amazing feats like you literally can eat a car if you do it but I mean that's just you know the the body's physiology the receptors becoming uh, uh tolerant to it yeah and really you know what we learn in school is there there actually is no opioid maximum dose I mean uh so if you're working like in cancer pain or things like that, I mean, you, 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 can, you can keep going up. I mean, it's really, the, it's really the Tylenol if something has a Tylenol component that, that limits it. But if we're just talking about plain oxycodone, there's no Tylenol to worry about. So, yeah. so after two years, is that when you started looking into other sources on the street? Yes, yes. So I would find, um, you know, um, I mean, I hate to say this term, but I would find other patients that um, were going to my doctor. My doctor, I, I, of course, found one that was known to prescribe pain medicine because you kind of start to find out who will keep you going on your pain contract and who won't. I started to meet other people that were going to this particular doctor. It's like a whole underground of people. It's, it's, it's weird, but you almost have to gain people's trust and you know, everyone's you know, worried about getting in trouble for selling theirs and da, 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 da. But yeah, so I would say it's like, you have people that go there very, maybe like 10% of people that go to a pain clinic or pain doctor, there's the 10% that really are in pain, maybe they have cancer, whatever, and they're taking their medication as prescribed. I would literally say it's about another, you know, 45% are addicts that are there, you know, just to get their month worth so that they can do it in a week or two. And then you have the ones that go in there and just take their pain medicine before they go in. So they pass their UA and they sell the rest of theirs because it's a lot of money when you're charging a a dollar a milligram. I mean, some people were, that's how they were paying all their bills. And some people were Mm -hmm. living very, you know, well from selling their pain um, medicine. And so, yeah you kind of got to know different people or hear of different people and so it's like this whole underground network um and everything was going fine I would say with that you know I would the way I was able to afford it was as I would help other people um I knew a plethora of people from going to the pain clinic and so I would help other people that didn't know as many people and I would mark theirs up so mine were you know at a lower cost or free and so that worked for about, I don't know, five years, I'd say. And then it quit working. And so, yeah, I actually, you know, um, I think the reason why it quit working was because, you know, laws were starting to come down. The opiate epidemic was all over the news and everybody knew about it. And so even my doctor, um, I was, the reason why I was on a pain contract originally was for endometriosis. 
and he even I'll never forget I was in my appointment he goes well I can no longer prescribe um, you your pain medicine for your endometriosis but let's go ahead and get that x-ray of your neck because weren't you telling me that you had arthritis in your neck and I was like yeah he goes yeah let's just switch you over to that and I was like I remember you know I was just like okay and yeah that's how it went and so <laughs> I remember leaving there like, oh my gosh, he literally just helped me keep my pain medicine. Wow, this is awesome. Whether or not he was doing, I'd like to think he thought he was helping me, but I don't know. I don't, you know, I mean, who knows what his logic was. But yeah, so a lot of people were losing their pain um, prescriptions at that time. Fentanyl was starting to come up at that time. Um, I didn't like it, thankfully. Um, yeah. Uh, there was a lot of fake pain pills going around. It was a really scary time. I tried to, this is two years prior to um, my actual formal quit date. I tried to get clean and I wound up um, some of the people that I had met through the little underground, you know, pill trading had told me, oh, well, you know, just try cocaine or meth. It'll, it'll help you get clean and then you can get clean off of that. Well, Coke was really hard to find and mess wasn't. So I tried mess and yeah, it helps you get off of pain pills for a very short period of time. And then you feel like crap from the mess. And so then you're back on your pain pills and then now you're doing mess just to stay awake. And it's like this. And I never thought I would ever, I mean, I mm-hmm. used to look down on people that did that and you know, it, it was really humbling. It's, it's humbling because yeah, you can't really judge any anyone on anything because it, it happens before you know it. And right. yeah. And that's, I mean, what what I hear, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're a mother of, I think, three. Yes. And you're doing mm-hmm. the, the suburban mom thing, taking yep. your, your, your uh, prescription opiates. Fast forward, you're, within a few years, you're using meth off the street, right? Yeah. Something yeah. you never, never thought you would be doing. Never. And it all started with a doctor's visit. And I, that yep. makes me want to ask, you keep mentioning paying contracts. And I'll be quite honest. I know people on paying contracts. I don't know what's in a paying What Describe a paying contract a little bit. So I just a base of knowledge for me. So this is my perception. I'll answer. And I don't know if Josh, if you want to step in and answer your perception. <laughs> but from my side, a paying contract, and I was kind of coached by someone that um, was already on one and they kind of told me what to say. Um, basically, I think there's different criteria that a doctor looks before they can put you on one. One is that you're um, in chronic pain, um, which I had documented chronic pain from um, the surgeries. And then also I, a car accident, you know, really did mess me up. I mean, I'm still in pain from it, but it's manageable. I don't need pain medicine, but at the time, of course, I thought I did. Um, anyway, so they look for that. And then also someone taught me that you always want to tell the doctor that your quality of life is poor and you just want a better quality of life. And so those key words will tell the doctor that you are some a candidate for a pain contract. And what a pain contract is, is you sign this piece of paper that says you will only get pain medication through that doctor Um, it has the amount and the type of pain medicine. Um, it also says that you can get random pill counts, which I never had one in eight years, I will say. Um, and, um, drug um, tests, 
drug test, yes, which I would have one about every other time I would come in. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. You, oh, and you're going to only one pharmacy as well. And that's pretty much um, it. Obviously, I didn't read everything, so I didn't exactly know. But yeah, I remember I was a little bit worried about the pill count thing because I was like, oh, gosh. But yeah, literally, they never did it. And I didn't even know anyone that they ever honestly did it to. So yeah. I mean, all that tells me is they're not really interested in worrying about addiction because no addict is going to say, you know, I, I'm making conscious decisions here. This addiction is a conscious decision. So I won't betray the contract, heaven forbid. Um, and realistically, if they are noticing that you are overly uh, acquiring pills or that you're running out of pills too early or you don't pass a drug test, is the answer really just to say, okay, now I'm not going to give you any pills, go to the streets and get them. Because in, in all actuality, if they were to withhold your medication because they noticed abuse, they know there's an addiction situation and withholding your meds doesn't mean you're going to stop. It means you're going to find alternative sources. So Absolutely. is there anything in a pain contract about if we see these things, we will help aid you in receiving counseling or receiving no. A therapy for see that tells you right there th this is a cover your own ass situation this isn't an actual i'm in worried about the health or the well-being of the patient because if i notice you're abusing it i'm just going to withhold it forever is not yeah. what a intellectually honest pursuit of the well-being of the patient would look like yep just, is that just how you clear, felt I mean, as the it, person it, going it, through it Everything Heather said is is accurate in my experience. I didn't actually do pain contracts, but I worked during this time and I was familiar with them. They were kind of institution specific, and and so and so some of the doctors, you know, they they would cut patients off that that had broken it, and, and it, it's kind of the standard of care was to refer people to treatment. It, oh, good. That's good to know. That's but, what I was hoping. But I, if yeah. I can't speak, I can't. That that's the appropriate standard of care, but I do, but I'm not saying, I'm not saying, I'm not questioning anything you said, Heather, and I'm not saying it was always done, but I mean, in a perfect world, that that was how it was set up. Well, the intent of the program. Most people, many people, did ultimately end up turning to heroin on the street, and that's yep. why we have a huge heroin. And just so the some of the listeners that don't know, um, heroin, um, heroin, heroin is metabolized to morphine, basically mm -hmm. all of, the, and I'm not, you know all of these drugs ultimately are metabolized to morphine or a similar component. So that's, that's an opiate. So okay. they're all similar. So that's why people can go from oral narcotics or opioids all the, all the way to, uh, to heroin. So just for the listeners. Here's, here's a pretty common question in this situation for somebody who has recovered and gone through recovery. What was your catalyst? I mean, I know that the idea of just waking up one day and saying, wow, I need to remedy this situation that's kind of, you know, a plight to my life is naive to think, you know, what, what was your catalyst for getting help and even seeking treatment in the first place? Mine, mine was pretty terrible. I hit way rock bottom. Um, I had mentioned, you know, that I started using meth, trying to get off the pain medicine, of course. And, um, and two, okay, so it was January 2018. I went into my doctor appointment to get more pain pills. And um, I don't know if the doctor I was seeing at the time had gotten in trouble. I later found out that she was in some sort of trouble. So, but anyways, she said that she could no longer prescribe me pain medicine. 
and she, <laughs> I was kind of ticked off because I had to go all the way in there to find that out. I was already sick and I was like, what? And she said she can no longer prescribe me pain medicine. So I left there wondering, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Um, that's when fentanyl pills were coming around, um, like everywhere. And so I was keeping myself from being sick by just taking those and obviously taking the mess. Um, and then um, a couple of people came around and I see I'm allergic to morphine. So mm. that's my oxycodone. I just, I loved it. And I had to be really careful about which pain pills I did take because mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, I'm like definitely allergic to morphine. Um, someone had come around and told me that, oh, here, just try this heroin. You'll be fine. I broke out in a huge rash afterwards. My throat started feeling like, you know, it was closing everything. It was pretty traumatic and I didn't even feel better. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, so, pro- I, don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth. It was probably the actual physical allergy to morphine slash heroin that prevented you from going there. You yes. mentally, you were already kind of going down that road. Yes. And so, um, another person, you know, that I was around, um, said, Oh, here, take this Benadryl. And so I would take a little bit of the heroin, to be honest, just to keep myself from being absolutely sick. Mm -hmm. Um, it got to a point then where I started to like it a little bit. Um, but I didn't like it as much as pills. If I could get my hand on some pills, that was ideal. Well, two months of that, um, obviously I changed (laughs) a lot in that. I mean, yeah, a lot. And family members started to notice a difference, friends, um, my probably my kids at school as well. And DHS actually showed up on my door, took my children. I lost my house. This all happened within a week. I lost my car. I had a brand new um, Dodge Charger car. And I just quit paying my bills. I quit paying my house payment, quit paying my car. So I lost my home, my kids, my car all in a week and um i remember uh sitting outside of the house as i was um packing it up and all these quote-unquote friends were helping me and turns out they were actually robbing all my belongings um so that i'm sitting there with absolutely nothing and my kid's father was he was actually in a treatment program for opiates as well um, cause he was in the same accident I was. So, um, but he had already been six months in treatment and, um, we've been kind of disconnected at the time because I wasn't wanting to be in treatment. And, uh, he, he called me and said, I look, I rented you a hotel room and you have an appointment tomorrow at this place. It's called ideal options. And I remember only going to that hotel room because I needed somewhere to sleep. I didn't even, I was hoping that I wouldn't even have to go to this appointment the next day and that maybe I could figure out, you know, what to do to get fatter or whatever. And don't get me wrong. I miss my kids terribly and I wanted them back. But in my addict mind, I thought that I could manipulate DHS, manipulate the whole situation and I would get my kids back and yada, yada. I was very fortunate that my kids went with my parents. They didn't go to a foster foster home. Um, but yeah, and I actually did go to my ideal options appointment. That's where I met Anya and I stay, I've been clean since. That's amazing. So yeah. Um, yeah, it, it took me to some pretty evil places. My addiction did. 
sounds like the opiates almost take control of your defenses and the defense mechanisms you have that you traditionally have as a human being for, you know, to feel certain feelings and to avoid certain things like the opiate takes over and rewires all of that for you, you know, and your defense is now built around keeping the opiate. And mm-hmm. you can figure out a way to get the kids back. You can figure out a way to save the house. You can figure out all that. Yep. Just don't take the opiates. Yep. 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 Oh, that's horrific sounding. And um, you're constantly manipulating whatever you can, your doctor, your family members, whoever you can. You know, I, I even thought in my head, oh, I can manipulate DHS, you know, da, 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 da. and, <laughs> you know, no, you know, I was very, very lucky. I had Anya, Anya, if Anya, Anya played a huge part in, um, my recovery she was so nice so friendly the moment I walked in that I almost like wanted to go back just to make her proud of me because she was so nice so it was like kind of like oh I want to make her proud like that I can do this and then I had a really nice case for her as well um she she that helped a lot um I know other people aren't as fortunate or don't see the clear the the light at the end of the tunnel per se but yeah, it took it took all of that to happen to me for me to finally, finally be done with pain pills. And the part that I think I was most upset about was in all these years, no doctor ever offered me a Suboxone program. Granted, I know that like in the beginning, there was only a few Suboxone doctors, but by 2018, you could get um, Suboxone from several different doctors. In fact, now you can get it you know, a lot of different um, primary care physicians are able to prescribe it. Um, but yeah, I was just pretty, yeah, no one ever offered me treatment. No one ever offered me anything. So. I mean, hearing the way you describe that also, and this is something I've never quantified before, but it sounds like when you were going through the height of your addiction before you actually were in the place of, of help, your personal relationships, you were manipulating. So there must be some level of disconnect in the intimacy and closeness. If you know that you are seeing them through a lie that you're painting, but Mm -hmm. then somehow with Anya, you had that feeling of relatability and intimacy and you wanted her to be proud of you, which is such an amazing way of phrasing it. Do you think, you know, just having that one intimate person who wasn't standing in judgment, who wasn't making you feel shameful, who wasn't making you feel like the people that we've always painted to be addicts. Do you think just having that one connection is what, what drew you in or, you know, yeah, it's hard because I know that addiction, when you're going through addiction in the height of it, I've heard it explained as manipulative. You manipulate everybody around you but I've never put it together what that must feel like in terms of having any intimate relationships with people. Yeah. It, it, you feel alone a lot of times because, you know, people catch on that you're manipulating them and they'll call you out. And of course you got to stand your ground with, you know, your story because, you know, you're never going to admit that you have the uh, problem deep down or anything like that. And so, yeah, Anya was the first person that, you know, showed me she cared that I didn't feel was judging me or, you know, trying to manipulate me into treatment or anything. She even told me, if you don't want this, you don't want it. I hope you want it. But if you don't, if it's not for you, it's not for you. And there's just something about her. And I feel like had I went somewhere else that um, would have treated me maybe badly, I might not have been so successful because Anya really, really, helped with that and it didn't take long for me to get my mind straight 
and I was able to get my kids back within two months, which is Ooh, pretty. That's really fast. Which, yeah, which is pretty fast. Um, but I was doing everything. I went. I flew through treatment. Um, one thing I will say is I wasn't huge on meetings, and so I try to explain that to a lot of different treatment facilities and a lot of mentors in the area that always try to hound people about going to meetings. The meetings are not for everybody. And for me, it was more of a trigger and <laughs> I didn't want to be there. You know, you're around people that you met in your addiction that, you know, it just brings up old memories and everyone's talking about their addiction constantly and the things that they did. And it's just not the same, you know, for me at all. I feel like it's not a healthy way to recover. I think that meetings really need to be, um, what have like a what is that like a makeover done on them in the way that they the way that they are ran and the way that they operate because <laughs> I just I don't see how they help very many people but just being in a room full of people also going through recovery helps but I just really think that the way meetings are ran needs to change for more people to be successful yeah, I mean, add addiction is is very interesting. I mean, we we probably over medicalize it, the system. I mean, the it's it's hard to study too the data because there's so much uh, stigma and anonymity. But I think it looks like meetings are about as successful as anything else, and most things aren't that successful. It's like ten percent, yeah. something like that. And there yeah. is like there is this. You know, for people that aren't familiar with addiction or with recovery, I mean, in in the meetings again, just to make sure I'm not putting words in your mouth, we're thinking like Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous or something 12 yes. step. Those are really um, fundamental, fundamentally spiritually based. Mm -hmm. And, and that can be a, a trigger for a lot of people who maybe grew up in the church and found it traumatizing or just don't, or, or just kind of struggle with formal religious dogma. Um, yeah, there's that too. Is that something that you found that was kind of triggering to you or is it just kind of the people it's mainly the people i found that in the area that i was in it was more of like a social get together everyone mm -hmm. was kind of hooking up with each other it wasn't serious and at that time i was really serious like mm -hmm. i wanted to know why i was why i had an addiction like i was really like it almost became a new addiction for me trying yeah. to figure out why I was an addict. Um, we don't know why we really don't know why it clicks for people. That's what actually fascinates me working in it. I mean, mm -hmm. one of my mentors said, how do you give people quote unquote, got it? Like they get it or it clicks. Like you just, like it just clicked for you one day. Yeah. And, and some people will ride their addiction to insanity or to death. And we see yeah. it all the time. Right. Uh, yeah. Whether it's overdose or um, so it's, I, I've become in my life a lot more comfortable with ambiguity. Um, I, I didn't used to be, but but there's so much ambiguity in addiction. So we where we just we just don't know why why it clicks for someone. Um, yeah. So it sounds like you were hooked up with Ideal Option and put yeah. in and started on the Suboxone program. Is that something you're still continuing with to maintain your sobriety? I actually am. I you know I've come to terms um my suboxone is kind of like my 
oh, what would I say? The, the little bit of Suboxone that I am on helps mm-hmm. with my pain enough to where, mm-hmm. cause I have, I do have pretty bad arthritis in my neck and my back. Um, my lower back is constantly in pain. In fact, when I wake up every morning, I'm like paralyzed. I can't move for the first like five minutes. It's pretty traumatizing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the Suboxone seems to help me enough to get through the day because there is a little bit of pain. Um, what is it? Pain medicine in it or whatever or yeah. something? Oh, yeah. yeah, it and is. A, it's a, a synthetic opioid. It's a partial opioid agonist, which means it binds to the opioid receptors. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, as you were talking, I, I didn't. This is actually extremely fascinating and timely because you mentioned around 2018. The, uh, so Suboxone has become very mainstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier than it was even two or three years ago. And actually just on Monday of this week, it was announced that uh, we don't have a time frame. But uh, so right now to be able to prescribe Suboxone for opioid use disorder, for addiction, the, a prescriber has to go through specialized training and get something called a waiver, an X waiver. Yeah. And uh with the new administration, with the Biden administration, that has actually been changed to where now moving forward, it hasn't been, the date has not been set yet, but they're getting rid of the waiver. So basically oh. is this, I don't know, I don't know all the details, so please don't quote me. I have to be careful being a licensed medical right. professional, but it sounds like basically anyone will be able to prescribe any, anyone with a medical license and prescriptive authority be able to pre- prescribe Suboxone for opioid use disorder. It should also be noted that Suboxone, suboxone or um, um, buprenorphine, which is, mm-hmm. buprenorphine is the, is the main component we're talking about, is, can be used for chronic pain and can yeah. be used for pain without the waiver. And that's, and that's, please tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but nope. that's what you're saying is I have chronic pain. This helps my chronic pain. This helps keep my cravings down. And yep. it has to do with the pharmacokinetics of the drug, the way that it binds. What patients say is it doesn't make them quote unquote high or euphoric, but it yep. can help with pain and it has less addictive potential. So it's just interesting. We're talking this week because this is this is in the in my world, in the addiction medicine world, this is an mm-hmm. extreme point of debate. And we don't know because some some people will say, if you're on Suboxone, you're not sober. I'm sure you've heard that. Oh, yes. <laughs> and and, and, and um, there's an excessive th- enthusiasm, I'd say, in the last five years in the medical community for using Suboxone and going there. And I'm and I don't. I don't have an opinion because I don't know the correct answer. It's a very individualized thing. What mm-hmm. I tell patients is some, some patients uh, go on Suboxone and they do great and they maintain sobriety and they never use illicit drugs again and they get everything back and they have a, a wonderful life. Yeah. Others tell me, I wish I would have never got on that because now I get sick when I don't take that and now I'm, now I'm just replacing one thing with another. Again, I'm not passing any judgment. I'm just telling oh, no. what, what, what people tell me. And we have, as far as I know, we have no way of predicting which patients to put on it and which not. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, someone with this characteristic clearly should go on Suboxone. Someone else should not. So it's, it's very heated in the medical community right now. And again, just very timely with the, with the prescription rules changing. So there's going to be more access for Suboxone for people for opioid use disorder, but there's also a ton of it on the street right now. And yeah. I, think, I think once you get, 
well-intending medical providers who want to help people but don't have the specialized training, um, there's always unintended consequences. So it's just it's just going to be interesting. We'll just we'll just see. So I, I just kind of yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, that I was just going to comment and say that was something that I was going to bring up is I don't, well, it's great that, yeah, more people can prescribe it. It's available to more people. I feel like the availability of it now is already so, I mean, every city pretty much you can find, you know, a Suboxone provider that I've seen. Yeah. Um, it's and capitalism. having you... somebody that doesn't have the knowledge behind the Suboxone, I feel like that's a little dangerous to be prescribing just openly to people because yeah I personally I don't get sick I can go several mm -hmm. days without mine oh, that's I don't get sick yeah. I don't know why I don't I've heard of other people say they they yeah. get sick I don't know if it's because I never mix like so I haven't had any relapses so I don't mm -hmm. know if maybe it's because I never mix the two mm -hmm. so it's just been you know what I mean like where yeah. maybe if someone's mixed them then yeah then they get sick because now you put i don't you know our mind's so yeah. crazy and weird i don't know um, i have a question for you yeah um so you went to the doctor when you were sick and you were given these medications and 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 all these things happened as you clearly outlined can you do you look back in your earlier life at certain patterns of behavior and say and feel like you were an addict all along you just weren't given the the poison yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it was head, alcohol but... before pain pills. Absolutely. Uh -huh. Yeah, I I used to be a huge drinker. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I've I've always been an addict, and it took me. I in fact, I didn't even find out why in treatment, but finally, I figured that out. Actually, with my new provider that I have right now, um, it's it's my anxiety and it's mm -hmm. my ADHD that you know when alcohol and pain pills and all of that it it, I don't know, it kind of treated my ADHD or my anxiety per se. And so that's why I was so addicted to, to them. And so now that I've learned techniques to kind of control my anxiety, my ADHD, I feel like I, that's part of my success as well, not only Suboxone. And why I feel like Suboxone is successful for me and like it's not successful for everybody right, right. <laughs> by any means, yeah. but for me is because one, I take it as prescribed. I don't take over when I'm prescribed. In fact, I sometimes take under when I'm prescribed. Mm -hmm. I'm not buying any on the street. I'm not craving it. I'm not getting sick from it. So to me, um, yeah, I mean, if it went away tomorrow, I might be a little sad in the fact that like it does help me with my pain, mm -hmm. but yeah, I would be okay. Right. I wouldn't, yeah. you know, I'd be and okay. This, yeah, I have, I, I basically have no opinion on it because it's, it's a very individualized yeah. um, uh, decision with you and your provider. And yeah, it's, it's just interesting for us. There's, there's thousands of people like you that are doing that. And then there, there's, there's other people, like you said, that it doesn't work for. So I think we just need to think about these really complex problems as we have a tool chest and a toolkit and certain tools work for certain people and if i mean mm -hmm. if if that doesn't work there's there are other things that work for other people i mean another another one that works um really well is um the long-acting injectable opioid blocker the um i'm, mm -hmm. I'm blanking on, on vivitrol. vivitrol thank you um 
it, it is interesting in the medical community, there's, as I already said, there seems to be a lot of enthusiasm around Suboxone and I think it is related to money. Um, and that's, that's always interesting. Um, I'd use different terminology than interesting. It's a little disheartening that that's, yeah. you know, the trail leads back to that. But, you know, all of these journeys are so personal. The idea that everybody's going to react the same to the same treatments or even have the same catalyst for this, you know, you describe your anxiety as what you were unknowingly always chasing the relief from. And my dad used to say, I drink because it removes the weight of the matter. Meaning, you know, mm -hmm. if I drink everything that sucks, that makes me stay up at night, that's, you know, making me pull out my hair, that just matters a little bit less with every drink. You know, mine isn't necessarily rooted in that, my addictions that I face, but everybody's are so unique. And it's interesting to hear you talk about your reaction to the medication and Adam's talking about the way that the people in his world are talking about it. And it keeps coming back to, I've never met two people who went through recovery the same way, that have gone through it and have the same story to tell, the same catalyst for seeking it, have the same catalyst for not seeking it, have the same success in the process um, or path to it. So understanding this, it's both as somebody who is unarmed with information, it's both heartening and disheartening at the same time, because to know that there's another avenue for success, but to know we don't know why, and we don't know why that's an avenue for some and not for others. Was there ever a fear in your mind when this was your method of going forward that if this doesn't work, I'm basically adding more addictions, you know, was oh. that ever a fear for you? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I, I my anxiety was through the roof when I went in and was talking to Anya. Obviously, initially at first, I took it so I could, you know, feel better. And then, you know, a couple of weeks in, I was like, okay, now what's going to happen to me? Da -da 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 -da. Like, <laughs> how is this going to work and everything? And she, she just said, look, we're in this together and we will figure out, you know, if it's working for you, if it's not working for you, we will figure that out. And so thankfully I did have her um, by my side um, guiding me. Um, yeah, it, <laughs> I'll tell you, if you have a loved one that is an opiate addict and you're trying to help them and they, and they want help, <laughs> that's the key way, way though, it, they want the help um find them a provider or a treatment facility do your research first because that is going to make a huge difference from what i've seen in someone's recovery that's it's great how they're treated early on that's great advice um and it's funny to listen to you talk about the recovery process because i've heard other people who went through recovery they talk about when they're in the process of the issue itself, they spend all their time trying to neglect or sorry, deflect the blame. My dad would always do it. He didn't even know he was doing it. He would tell me about doing it. And I'd be like, yeah, I watched you do it, man. But uh, you deflect the blame. You put it off on other things. It's this is the reason I'm drinking or it's this thing's fault that I'm drinking or it's this thing's fault, you know, because we have that inherent need to blame. Do you feel that as you're seeing success that you deflect the success and have trouble accepting praise even? or congratulations for your your success through it and that you still try to deflect it to, I'm successful because of these people or I'm successful because of this and, and miss the huge overwhelming thing of you're successful because of Heather. Yeah, yeah, Anya used to tell me all the time, don't thank me, it wasn't me, you did the work and I, I, and I would, I would have a really hard time. 
and it's a lot of the guilt and the shame and everything that comes along with you know being an addict I mean I still like even with my children uh you know my children go to school so I have you know mom school friends and a lot of them know about my past I've been open and honest just so that it's out there just in case anyone were to say something you know they know I they heard it from the horse's mouth first I guess and so I think even with like getting praise it's all back to shame guilt and everything else we it's almost like you're looking at yourself and you just can't believe who you were like like do you ever think back to like when you're a teenager and go oh my gosh what did I do that was so dumb what I did well imagine having that you know how you feel like that or like we've all drank (laughs) right and the next day you're like oh my gosh that feeling you know what did I say what did I do I was dancing on the bar table you know that shame that you get well imagine that times a hundred and it not being because because you were drinking or being when you were a teenager it was something that you did to yourself and and behaviors that you were doing yourself. And so just that person that you once were, it's like, they're still a part of you, but it's almost like you hate that person so much that you have so much shame and guilt inside of you. And I'm still struggling with that. And that is something that I am trying to work through because, you know, you can't, you can't live like that. You know, you just can't because you have to accept, you know, what happened and move forward from it. But it is really, really hard. And I don't think I know anyone that has ever said that, you know, they don't have any shame or remorse or guilt anymore. So, Have you also found being someone in the, in the suburban community that's quote unquote the addict that people also confide in you? Uh, so kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. And that's, and that's something I want to call out. And that's really a big part of this podcast is just about breaking down the stigma and the barriers and getting towards the truth, because that's happened to me so much as someone who you wouldn't write off as you wouldn't necessarily think would identify as an addict. I mean, so many people that present themselves as um, not, not having any issues, uh, your own fallibility allows the door to be open for them to talk to you about whatever it is, their anxiety, their, their depression, their antidepressants they've been on forever or so-and-so they're worried about with drinking. You know what I'm saying? So it can kind of go both, both ways. And then you quickly realize that we're all flawed and we all are just doing the best that we can. And we, we need to break down these barriers and give each other a lot more grace. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you gotta think like, I, I mean, I think in my teenagers, I, my addiction back then was shopping. Like there's so many addictions. There's gambling addictions, shopping addictions. I think everybody has a form of addiction. There's cleaning addiction. Have you ever, you know, been to someone's house and, you know, a little mm-hmm. tiny speck that you can't see and they're over there scrubbing on the corner. That's an addiction. They're addicted to, you know, cleaning or making everything perfect. And maybe it's their OCD or whatever it is that's making them that way. But Yeah. Absolutely. All of us are flawed. And I love that you guys have, you know, this podcast and there's other, that's honestly what got me through was things like your guys' podcast and um, YouTube channels. That's what helped me in my addiction. Yeah. And I try to 
let other people know of all of the different podcasts or YouTube channels because they're more beneficial, I feel like, than, um, than going to meetings because you can actually hear from real people and successful people that they are they too are flawed and you don't feel as as bad whereas when you go to meetings you know you got people in there that are have a day sober to 10 years sober some people are currently high and they're just there because the court's making them like it the serious level just isn't there whereas this right here this is a serious conversation we're having there's no one laughing in the background or making comments or you know what i mean so i just think that things like this are more I, I don't know. I think that in someone's early recovery process and even further on, I still listen to podcasts um, that uh, this is more beneficial than most meetings that they would find out there. In my right. opinion. And our, a big goal for us is just being able to have the conversation without any stigma, without anything preconceived coming in because we're all incredibly flawed people, but we all talk about things with such finality. And this is where it's dangerous because growing up, you know, in order to prevent kids from experimenting in ways that, you know, news alert, they're going to experiment. Um, we try to make it this very singular, lonely, dangerous, the guy sleeping in the ditch who just stabbed that other person, that's the only people, that's always what happens to addicts. And if you become an addict, then you are now in the same grouping as them. So there are so many people not getting help because of the stigma. And there are so many mm -hmm. people on the other side where their therapeutic process is hindered greatly by the stigma. And that stigma is created by a bunch of people who have never experienced or been trained in the situation. So therein lies the danger of speaking about anything with finality or speaking about anything as though I know this, I'm an expert, even though I've never studied it. And it's all based in my beliefsies and my opinions that were rooted in no information. So to have someone like you come on and say this, you say you find solace in this type of thing. You coming on and talking about it does more for people's learning process than anything else possibly could, because you're somebody who went through it. You're describing it very vulnerably. And when I say vulnerable, you're not controlling the conversation in any way, which is a manipulative disease hinders that process so much. But you're just saying, here's everything I went through. Think of it what you will. Deal with it how you will. There are so many people out there who are struggling with the, if I admit this and go to counseling, then forever I am the guy with the, or the gal with the addiction. I never get to shake that. That will always be part of my identity. And as long as I keep it secret, I still, that's not who I am. Mm -hmm. And then when they're getting help, like you said, you can't handle the praise. You still kind of deflect that off onto other people of, you know, Heather, I'm just going to say it. Like what you did was a hero's journey. A lot of people don't come out on the other side the way you do and willing to talk about it. So whether you want to deflect that or not, there it is. That's, that's the reality of the situation. Thank you. And there's somebody out there listen, who theoretically will listen to this and think, it isn't so bad to tell people somebody is going to have my back. Somebody will be in my corner. And on the other side of this, I get to have those things back that I miss. You know, mm -hmm. I think, I think this is the most important part of any intellectual pursuit is just the honesty and candor of an actual expert. I agree. I absolutely agree. Talking about it and being able to share my story and my success and 
my struggles and everything keeps me going. Honestly, I, I, I love it, but it was a really hard um, hurdle to get over was even just talking about it and admitting, like I said, to like my kids, friends, parents that, you know, that seemed to be like the biggest group of people in my life that I was so embarrassed to, admit something to and now I talk about it openly with them all and you know like you like you said Josh you know they all come up to me and you know they'll tell me about this or that and I'm finding you know that yes people that look perfect they are also flawed as well and yeah it's just it it's it's I I love that the stigma of addiction is how do I put this? Um, I guess there's not so much stigma towards addicts and addiction, but there is still a lot of stigma there. But I love that there's more awareness now through podcasts like this, through other avenues. But yeah, you're right. It is still there. And it's, it, and it's up to us as addicts to break out and share our stories especially people that I'm not somebody that people that you would think would be an addict I was a suburban mom I have my bachelor's degree I wasn't I didn't grow up in a drug infested home I grew up very you know proper and I wasn't you know the quote-unquote addict you know so it's well and, and like just to add on to that what you were kind of saying earlier like for me um I was always a confident person, but secretly I didn't like being the center of attention. So to be someone that like sticks out or has to kind of be the, the, the represent, representation in my community as someone in recovery, that was really hard to wrap my head around. But just like you said, you know, that, that was kind of part of it with this podcast. Like, okay, well, we're going to start this podcast. We're going to call it Life on Earth and try and be as raw as off- and authentic as possible. I have to be able to talk about the fact that I am an alcoholic in recovery. And the more, just like you said, I'm just echoing what you said, the more you do it, the more empowered you feel for the reasons I just outlined when I last spoke, which is like people, so many people, I, I can't think of anyone that, that then they feel like they have the freedom to tell their actual truth, not the layers of crap that we've all put on top of it just so we can survive in this society. And so yeah. all I've had is positive reinforcement. And this is, I think, exactly what our society is hungry for right now and just the craziest year that you can think of with I everything know. that's happened. <laughs> and continues to happen (laughs) I know just just, so it's yeah I mean just thank you for sharing your story it just it just gives me strength and I thank you thank you for having me on and thank you for even having a podcast like like this it's it is it's it just helps people it really does it without this I feel like especially right now during times like this, where you can just go on the internet and listen to this at your own leisure. You know, times are really hard, especially for people struggling. Uh, I can't even imagine being an active addiction right now, how hard things yeah. must be. Right. Yeah. We're really isolated. That's That doesn't help addiction. And then I think mm-hmm. technology addiction is, is going to be the next one. Um, we're already seeing that, so. Yes. <laughs> I absolutely agree with children, especially it's, 
Yes. I mean, I see it with my daughter, her, yeah, her mental health. Well, yeah, yeah. how it's affected by technology. But right now it's kind of hard with them having to be on the computer so much and having all that screen time but screen time does majorly affect us more than we know and it's not just that it's you know most of us who had trauma at eight were alcoholics at eight and a half so that doesn't go away um i'm worried about what this is going to look like in 10 years when these eight-year-olds are 18 i mean the idea that we're going to say just say no or if we stigmatize this group of society so much that our kids won't experiment with alcohol i mean i grew up with an alcoholic dad and you know news alert newsflash i drank at 18 even though i knew alcohol equals my favorite person in the world sleeping in the front yard for all my friends and family to see Mm -hmm. don't drink when i was 18 somebody's like do you want a beer and i was like yeah i do um it, it just puts a real face on things for people and and to realize that in 10 years we're going to have another epidemic on our hands and that's these kids who have been living in solitude whether you are for it or not i mean i get i I, i'm not here to debate whether it's valid argument but what i'm saying is regardless this is still going to happen we are going to have a group of traumatized affected kids what do we do to we can either have them all becoming alcoholics and shaming them for it or we can just be aware and be ready be ready with what we know works and with people like you story that we can share with them about now let's get you on the other side yeah Yeah, absolutely I yeah I've been (laughs) I've been actually talking to other parents about this because there has to be a certain level where you have to allow your children okay so this is how kids are communicating together is through screen time and through electronics whether it's video games they're all chatting on their headsets yada 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 And while we are all trying to still limit our kids' screen time, most of us, and not just let them kind of go rampant, you can't be too much either because that's their social time as well. I had this discussion with a parent actually just yesterday about it. Um, You know, this is their social time. Like, they don't have recess anymore. They don't have school anymore to where they're getting what they need socially, so right yeah it's a really that's a really touchy subject and i agree hopefully you guys will still have your podcast around to <laughs> in 10 years to <laughs> do a segment on on all that i think we will <laughs> even if we're down to one listener i think adam and i will be <laughs> I, I, you know honestly i'm getting more out of this than any of our listeners could this has been so good for me just yeah. listening to people like you talk and the changes I see in my own mind frame on certain topics Mm -hmm. that like, honestly, part of me feels like we're robbing people of what is actually a college course on a lot of topics. So uh, yeah, I don't (laughs) see us stopping this anytime soon. But um, (laughs) with that, I am, we are up against the clock here because, uh, you know, the Zoom meeting is going to cut us off pretty soon. Um, I would like to have you back in a couple of months when we have more episodes because you are a great quantifier of a message and there, you know, there's listening to a therapeutic version of the story and then listening to the real world applicability of it. So thank you so much for your time today. Is there anything you want to say before we call today here? Just thank you for having me on. You guys have been great. I loved it. It was, it was very therapeutic for me as well. And I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. And Thanks, have, Heather. Enjoy the rest of your day. Well, life on earth ain't all it's cracked up to be. You'd be fine if it
On the cabus is when the police come with their tear gas preparation. Gonna take you down to some secret underground location. We just want a little bit of your information. Oh, we're gonna stick you and your dirty friends with instigation. I jumped up! I scream, you, y'all have the equation. The other half is the majority population. They've been shut out of the power consolidation. All we want is human rights, not corporation. Oh man, don't you see you're just a tool of the situation. Showed up to protect the state from the nation. Your arrival coincides with the escalation. Do you understand the hidden implication? Am I clear enough with my little bit of accusation? And because I got 12 year public education. They give me time served in one year's probation. It's life on earth and all it's cracked up to be. You'd be fine if it wasn't for me. And I ain't saying we can't all get along. It's easy to forgive you, baby, cause you're wrong. 